0: If you grow microbes and start with soil, grow it under different conditions, like you change the pH, or you change the salts, or you put it under light, or you remove the carbon, or you treat it to extensive temperatures, you don't get the 10,000 species you find in a tablespoon of soil. You only get a couple hundred. And that, if you have an organism within that population, that's why we call population biology, If you have one that gives you a very strong signal, it can sort of reach out and say, I'm here. It can reach out of that 200 and say, wait, I'm only, I can whisper from this because I'm still a small part, but now I'm only one of 200. I'm not one of 10,000 where the signal is going to be lost. Signal to noise becomes lost.
1: Welcome to Fall 9 Field Notes, a podcast exploring the intersection of technology with agriculture and food. We're your hosts. I'm Eric O'Brien. And I'm Clay Mitchell. Today's guest is Dr. Barry Goldman, founder and chief science officer at Pluton Biosciences, a fall line portfolio company in which we led their seed round back in 2021. Barry is a giant in the world of microbial science, and he's been responsible for discoveries that have led to massive commercial success in the ag industry. Before founding Pluton Biosciences in 2017, Dr. Goldman led the microbial testing pipeline for Indigo Ag and served as the microbial discovery lead for Monsanto. He's published over 30 peer reviewed scientific studies and holds more than 10 patents. He attended the University of Washington, where he earned his Bachelor of Science in Botany, and then his PhD in Microbiology from the University of Utah.
2: In our conversation, Dr. Goldman breaks down the science behind microbial cover crops. Now we're huge advocates of cover crops at Fall Line. Microbial cover crops allow us to achieve a lot of the same benefits at pennies on the dollar of cost compared to plant-based cover crops. He also shares the process behind microbial discoveries and founding a business supporting farming technology through biology. We begin our interview with Dr. Goldman by discussing how Pluton has managed the challenges of deploying microbes in complex field environments versus controlled labs. First question, Barry, as a very skilled scientist in microbes, have you ever intentionally infected friends or family with microbes?
0: (laughs) Not intentionally, but of course, you know, things do get spread, you know, via respiratory systems and otherwise, but I do wash my hands regularly.
2: In seriousness, agriculture has had you know mixed experiences with microbes. Of course, there are a few very successful products, but it's an area where there's a much larger pool of products that that are inconsistent but stay out there on the marketplace and have not been able to get traction compared to you know a lot of crop protection, you know, traditional small molecule chemistry, where if something doesn't work, it simply doesn't make it onto the market. Part of the reason may be because the regulatory hurdles are so much higher with small molecule chemistry. But it is certainly very different having microbes in field environments versus industrial environments where you're controlling the conditions, you've got a controlled feedstock. How do you deal with that at Pluton?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a great question. And when I was at Monsanto and Indigo, there was certainly a lot of skepticism. There's a lot of bugs in a jug. What are you providing me and of course, these are biological systems. I mean, the beauty of chemistry is a molecule binds to a specific receptor and does its job. And microbes, you're looking for what I call second-order effects. The microbe has to get somewhere, then do its job to have an influence on the plant or the soil, wherever. And you just don't have as much control. And some of the impacts are, oh, the microbe isn't alive, or the microbe didn't get where it needed to be, or it's not stable, or or it has to compete with other microbial systems. So. These are really, really complex systems. So as we thought about that for Pluton, we try to say, how do we eliminate all those secondary effects? That is, how do we generate a product that all it has to do is grow to do what it needs to do? And so we thought about simplification because the background has been, does this stuff work? Can I get it to work consistently and overcome all those effects? And so we really thought about microbes that, could just be put out into the soil. And if they grew, they did their job because just by growing, they could take CO2 and nitrogen out of the atmosphere and put them into the soil.
2: What kind of assays do you run to ensure that you know, it's going to work in different environments? Right
0: now, we're kind of in that early stage where we're just trying to make sure these things work. So the first things were like, can you get this to grow in liquid without putting in any carbon or nitrogen? Can you do that? Can you provide no inputs and ask them to grow? It's a very strict regimen that requires the microbes to really show their muscle. And we do that in liquid. That's a little easier. And now we're in the process of putting that. We put that onto petri plates uh, into small, you know, but they're about five inches across and see if they'll grow on soil or on sand or something else. Now we're in the greenhouse and we're putting onto four and a half inch pots and dozens and dozens of pots in a greenhouse where you're putting on light and you're putting on just soil, and they're working great. We are controlling each of the steps, but you know, like a traditional agricultural product, you have to walk it through each of the steps that are necessary to show that the product will work. And so you, know, you have to walk before you can run, start with something simple, make it more complex, more complex, more. The next step for us is to try these in the field in very controlled plots, and then start it onto bigger locations and larger locations. So we're kind of like, halfway through those steps, but we also know we're getting to the hard part, which is microbe versus environment, and can we make those things work? So we're testing each of those specific environments and then making sure it works. But again, we don't provide inputs. We don't provide carbon. We don't provide nitrogen. We ask that the microbes can grow under those highly stressful
2: requirements. And so what you're talking about here is the microbial cover crops, which for our listeners' sake, we didn't really define kind of what that Right. is. We're big proponents at Fall Line of cover crops and across our farms all across the U.S. You'll find a much higher percentage of fields covered with cover crops than in the regions that we're farming in, but it's an expensive thing to do. And I think it'd be useful for you to give kind of an overview on microbial cover crops and what the advantages are and certainly cost is the top thing that I'm hinting at.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. So it was the idea that, you know, when we were first looking at this idea of what could microbes do, and I'm gonna kind of step away for just a second and give you a little explanation of microbes. So there are, at least from the latest technologies of sequencing computers, we now understand that it's probably close to a trillion different species of microbes in the world, which as humans we only look at, you know, maybe a few thousand. And it seemed to me as I was developing Pluton that we were not leveraging that massive diversity that was out there. And as a consequence, we as humans were not taking advantage of what the world had generated for us. I mean, we've been great at finding antibiotics and finding genes for traits and things like that, but still that massive diversity was out there. And so we really started thinking about how can we do that? And one of the applications as you look at what was happening in farming is that cover crops seem to be doing a great job, but they weren't being adopted at as high a percentage. And, you know, when I started asking people why that was the case, you know, we get questions like, well, it's kind of expensive. It's extra work. It does great things for my field. And I think everybody agrees on that, but then they pay a lot. They can pay $50, $60 per acre for a cover crop. And then the return can take a while to happen as well as all the extra work. And so when we thought about cover crops, Microbes can be put onto soil as little as 5 to $10 an acre. And if you can get that price down to 10, 20% of what a cover crop is, and maybe not get all of what a cover crop can do, but get a lot of what a cover crop can do in terms of putting carbon and nitrogen from the atmosphere into the soil, and you don't need all the extra work, and our plan was no taxi rides, that is, it'll go on at the same time as other products. You don't have to do anything at the end of the day. And it does, you know, maybe 70 to 80% of what our standard cover crop can do. You can come in at a lower cost and get most of the value for it. And we think that there might be better adoption. It's soil independent. So it can go on any soil. It could go after any crop. And we think about this as a shoulder season product. It can go in the spring and go in the fall. And you can keep building up carbon and nitrogen into the soil over time as you keep applying the product. And so that was the thought process behind what we were trying to do.
1: Barry, when you think about the effectiveness of a microbial cover crop versus a traditional cover crop, can you give us a sense for the volume, sort of how much organic matter effectively can you put into the soil? Theoretically, what are you
0: seeing? That's a great question. So we believe we can put north of of a ton of CO2 equivalents per acre per year. And roughly, our estimates are 30 pounds of nitrogen per acre per year. With the cover crops, the biomass, it's a horizontal biomass. They're not big. I mean, but the bottom line is these are photosynthetic organisms. And they use the same machinery that plants use. They use exactly the same machinery. They're taking light and they're converting light energy into biomass sugars. But in addition, they're using that energy to do a very expensive chemical process which is conversion of N2 into ammonia. Today, we do that through the Haber bosch process. And that Haber bosch process is fed humanity. It is what allows there to be 8 billion people on Earth today by bringing synthetic fertilizers to farms. It has a bad offshoot in that there's a lot of methane that's being used, and so you have to dig that out of the Earth. And it produces N2O. Synthetic fertilizers create 80% of what's called nitrous oxide, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. And so a lot of companies right now are thinking about how can we replace this critical component of farming but not have that secondary impact of increasing temperatures around the world? And so this is something we've been thinking about as well. And again, we can use microbes and only bacteria have evolved the ability to convert N2 to ammonia. They are the only organisms that do that. Everywhere you see nitrogen fixation, we think about soy, as fixing nitrogen? Well, it does so because there's a microbe that grows inside the soy roots that enable it to get sugar from the plants and provide nitrogen to the plant itself. But imagine doing that not just within a soy plant, but everywhere there's a soil, everywhere in the field, everywhere that you're growing. So essentially, how can we put in the benefits of crops like soy, but do that everywhere?
1: So it kind of sounds too good to be true at some level. (laughs) And what you have talked about, I haven't heard you mention that you're modifying any of these microbes. So presumably these are naturally occurring microbes. Where is the IP protection if you're successful here? How do you build a business on this if these are things that we can find in nature?
0: You can find them in nature, but what we find is the organisms by themselves don't do this well. They don't survive well. There seems to be something about finding an individual organism that will do that and so we grow groups of organisms called consortia that work together to provide a much better and robust growth in the individual organism so you know the patents i mean i won't go through all of our strategy but some of it is the combination of organisms how we apply them and the use case to make sure that we can protect that and so that's what we're busily working on and to identify the unique sets of organisms That will do this. And again, you know, I talked about a little while ago, that there's this massive diversity. So yes, you can find them, but can you really utilize them? I think that's really the difference is yeah, if you look through a science paper publications, you can probably find these organisms. And we know for one, we're working on there's been three publications on it in the tens of thousands of publications that are out there. But how we apply it, how we think about it, what it works with to solve the problems that we're trying to address. It seems to be unique. And so that's really the business model itself, is that we're creating a unique group of organisms that don't exist in nature as that unique set of organisms
2: that can solve this problem. So just one reason why it seems so magical, as Eric said, is because fixing nitrogen is extremely energy intensive. And to have, you know, individual bacteria fixing nitrogen requires some kind of significant external feedstock, something in the soil or something that's being fed to them by plant roots. And so here, figuring out how to match that nitrogen-fixing bacteria with the photosynthetic microbes is really the big unlock to make this work. And what's the regulatory process for this? How do you get approval?
0: It is what makes it unique, though, that you are putting together organisms that photosynthesize, that is, provide the energy from sunlight and Convert that to sugars that are used by nitrogen fixing organisms to essentially block that energy. And it is very, very energy intensive. So we go through the USDA. And so it is considered a soil amendment, at least in most states. And you just have to show the presence of these organisms. Now, that is not trivial. And so you have to identify groups or within ourselves where we're looking at the diversity of organisms that are in the soil and say, is this organism present or not? We do not alter the organisms in any way other than to pick the different ones out and put them together in unique ways, and then we put them on the soil. But as long as they're recognized as existing and being found in many places, we're basically just, we take them from the soil, we isolate and separate them, put them back together and put them back onto the soil. We don't believe we're changing anything, and so far the USDA has been fine with what we're doing within a state, and we're working diligently so that we can move things across state boundaries
2: so the microbes that you discover within a particular state you can kind of redevelop consortia re-release in that state mm-hmm. but it's a higher hurdle to cross state borders yeah that's correct that's correct i know there's a kind of a little funky twist in the regulatory process depending on whether you know or don't know what the specific microbes are i wonder if you could speak to that a
0: bit yeah so the USDA wants to know there's a bunch of twists and turtles in that space. A lot of the things that have been discovered in the last 20 years, you know, have to be integrated into regulatory processes. And so it's really hard. And so basically you have people who are trained to, you know, essentially try and make sure that nothing bad happens, right? That's really what the regulatory agencies are trying to do is let's make sure nothing bad happens. Let's make sure that nothing that is a plant pathogen is getting transferred around. But that's what they're focused on. They were trained in plant pathology and in plants and in biology and ag practices. This whole world of understanding what microbes are, that's a whole new world. And all of a sudden they're being thrown and showing, oh, here are 500 new organisms that are all have Latin names they've never seen. And it's a foreign language. It is literally a foreign language. It is Latin. And now you're asking them to look at this foreign language and say, okay, make sense of this and make sure everybody's protected. And so they're trying to make sense of it. And this whole idea of there's not 100 microbes out there, there are a trillion microbes, You know, that's a mind-boggling amount of information and diversity that's out there, which as a, you know, a 30-year microbiologist, it's like, well, of course. But if you're not, then of course it's a high hurdle. And so we work with the regulatory agencies to sort of say, okay, don't worry about the name. The name's important and you want to match and make sure that you've seen this organism before you're comfortable with it. And that's one way to get your handle on it. Have I seen this? Do I know that it's safe? But the other way I think about it is well, what's inside? What are the genes that are inside? Are there genes inside that would make it active as a plant pathogen? And if there aren't, well, are you concerned about the name? We know most of the genes that are inside. And in fact, the reason you know names like, you know, the names of different uh, pathogens is because there's actually not that many things that are pathogenic of the literally billions of things that are out there, there's you know not that many things. And we know a lot of them. We know a lot of the mechanisms that cause pathogenesis in animals and plants. And we can look for those. And in fact, that's what we look for. So we go, we will go through a regulatory process besides the naming convention to make sure our stuff is safe. Now, we don't need to do that for regulatory, but we will do that because we feel that's the important thing to do to release our product, to make sure... Let's try and figure out the unexpected as you put things out there and make sure everybody is safe in that environment.
2: With synthetic chemistry, there are well-known degradation processes for anything that's commercially released. How is that managed with microbes? Is there kind of a concept of turning them off and on? What prevents kind of runaway microbe growth?
0: Yeah, well, first, these organisms are generally rare in the soil. So we're finding things that tend to be pretty rare. So when you put them in a population, they don't do well. Second, there's also a concept that the soil microbiome pretty much will take over and supplant anything you're putting on there. The third is that when you actually look how much we're putting on the soil, which is roughly 10 to the 3 microbes per centimeter, so about 1,000 microbes per centimeter, what's found ambient in the soil is about a million times more than that. And so they represent a very tiny population. What we're trying to do is sort of seed what's in there and then have it grow up. But just like weeds will take over a field, the rest of the microbiome will take over for our population that we see. So they'll compete really well for a few months and then the weeds will take over and then they will no longer be able to compete against the other soil microbes that are present. And so things like weather, light, and water will have a dramatic impact on how long those things survive. We expect them to survive in the soil for one to two months and do their
2: job in that time frame. Now, when we first met, you had two platforms, and the microbial cover crop seemed to be more of a moonshot and has been really advancing rapidly with laboratory work and field trials. The other platform is developing kind of natural crop protection products, and I was wondering if you could explain that platform a bit.
0: I was hired by Monsanto right when the genomics era was getting started. And so my job was to look inside all the sequencing we did in corn and in rice and in all the microbes to say, what cool things could we find in here? So I spent a career looking at these kinds of things. And as I realized that we were looking at barely a tiny fraction of what was out there, it felt like we know about Bacillus thuringiensis, BT, which created you know all of the traits that gave us insect protection. And we have... Again, from microbes, Roundup Ready, Dicamba resistance, all these things came from microbes, yet we'd only been looking at a tiny, tiny fraction of what was there. And it seemed to me, how can we find the next BT? How can we find that next set of products that were out there? And it seemed to me, if we started looking outside there and started looking at all this diversity of microbiology, that we could start looking at that. So I'll give you a bit of an anecdote. When we started this and we were asking, you know, friends and family for funding, at the time Zika virus was a problem, right? People were seeing Zika coming out of mosquitoes. And so I said, well, we need to show that, that what I can do, that we can find something novel in that mass diversity that's out there. And I said, okay, I bet I can find a novel microbe from my backyard, literally from my backyard, that will kill the mosquito that carries Zika virus in a new way. So that's what I promised. And my wife handed me 10 little bags of soil, 10 little baggies of soil. They all contained about two tablespoons each. And we found a novel bacteria that had never been seen, never been reported, that killed Aedes aegypti. Now, that isn't what we move forward as a product, but it showed that the power of using that diversity that's out there to find that. And in fact, we found from somebody else's backyard, a product that is now moving forward, we call it Blue Six. And it appears to be a novel natural product that kills not only, it was first found to kill mosquitoes, but we also showed that it can kill fall armyworm and several other lepidopteran pests.
1: And we're talking about not actually sprinkling the microbe on fields, but essentially extracting the metabolite that does that. Is that right?
0: Yes. Yeah, so, ex- yeah, exactly. You know, taking that metabolite out, isolating it, and showing that it, in fact, has an impact. And right now we have the natural product. And we're also trying to move it through uh, chemistry, which is to make alterations. It's called structure-activity relationships. I'm, you know, we're getting a little bit of work. So SAR is also what it's called. To understand how to change the structure just a little bit, one portion of the molecule at a time, and see if we can get that level of activity that would make it a really premium product. So one of the problems with nature is nature doesn't always give you like the most exciting thing right off the bat. And so it does give you that insight that says this is new and interesting. And then how do you get to that level of efficacy that makes you excited and can really help a farmer protect their fields?
1: And let's pull the thread on that a little bit as it relates to the regulatory hurdle that you would have to go to. You know, In a perfect world, you find the microbe that generates the metabolite that is perfect, and then you are regulated as what? Versus, okay, we found it, we can modify the microbe itself to create a better metabolite or we can uh, essentially synthesize that metabolite in a different way as a chemical. Like, Help us understand the gradation of steps.
0: So if it's a biological, that is if you're using the natural product from the microbe, you would go through the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, and that would still take you four to five years to bring that to market. And that's a relatively high barrier, but certainly much less than a synthetic chemistry. But if you modify it, whether you modify the organism or you modify it as a straight chemistry, that has to go through a standard chemistry. And that, of course, is 10 to 15 years and a whole lot of money to bring it forward. On the other hand, there's not a lot in the pipeline. There's not a lot of novelty out there. And bugs are still chewing up our crops. And we have to do things to make a difference. And so what we're looking for, you know, we're hoping for the home run that says, I can apply a biological that can make a difference. I'd love to see that. We haven't seen that yet. But if we can bring new modes of action to market and we can bring three or four different novel modes of action together forward at the same time, now we can start layering those onto our current chemistries as well as layering them onto themselves to provide some really nice protection for growers. And so you're getting multiple modes of action that are new and provide that protection so that we don't see resistance to the fall armyworm or corn rootworm that we're seeing today. And how much cry one a c is getting nicked up from the insects becoming resistant
2: to those, you know critical products. Pluton is a relatively small team compared to large agribusinesses trying to develop you know product solutions in these categories. How are you able to pursue these two platforms? Maybe you could just describe for a moment the size of pluton and the kind of skill sets you have around the table and what synergies exist between the two platforms?
0: You know, we have a platform itself, and we gave it a term we call micromiting, but it's really, The idea of using, and this may get too arcane, we call it population biology. So since the time of Louis Pasteur, since late 1800s, we've been isolating microbes one at a time, right? And that's still what they're doing today. And I ran this platform both at Monsanto and Indigo. You isolate one micro at a time, which is great. But if you're trying to look through a trillion species, basically, when I did the calculation, I think it took 10,000 years if you looked at 100 per day. I don't remember if that my math is still right, but it's in that ballpark, that you could not find all those. And so, you know, we tried to think of a way to look at more at a time. And so one way is to say, well, instead of doing one, why don't I look at 100 at a time or 200 at a time? And there's a couple ways you can think about that. One of them is to use some sort of nanofluidics and move microbes around. But of course, microbes don't want to be moved around that way. And how do you know what you have? So instead, what we did was to, if you grow them under different, if you grow microbes and start with soil, grow it under different conditions, like you change the pH, or you change the salt, or you put it under light, or you remove the carbon, or you treat it to extensive temperatures, you don't get the 10,000 species you find in a tablespoon of soil. You only get a couple hundred. And that, if you have an organism within that population, that's why we call population biology... If you have one that gives you a very strong signal, it can sort of reach out and say, I'm here. It can reach out of that 200 and say, wait, I'm only, I am only—I can whisper from this because I'm still a small part, but now I'm only one of 200. I'm not one of 10,000 where the signal is going to be lost. Signal to noise becomes lost. And so when you can do that, you can say, oh, I have 200. Now, if you sequence all of those populations, you can now look inside those and say, well, what did that? And so you get that weak signal, and then you can look inside that weak signal and say, what did that? And you can find that signal. So we're combining this idea of population biology, finding just some distinct subset of microbes, sequencing massively, which is now a contemporary thing that you can now do and really have been able to last over 10 years, and then massive computational analysis to say what's inside that group and how do we make sense of it. So those three pieces change how we look at it. So that's really how we're trying to approach it. In terms of the team itself, right now, we're 15 people. We'll be growing to about 30 over the next six to nine months. And it's lab biologists and it's computer scientists and it's people who sequence massively. But we also use the technologies that are out there. You know, so there's a sequencing core that we use. And a sequencing core is a group of scientists who just do lots of sequencing. And we're very fortunate in St. Louis to be near Washington University. And Washington University, you know, sequenced the cordon genome. They sequenced the human genome. They were at the very, very forefront, cutting edge of sequencing and the sequencing technology, you know, from the mid-1990s through today. They have been at the forefront of that. And that's enabled us to, instead of having to become the best sequencing people in the world, to say, well, we can work with you and work with them and send our our samples to Washington University. We pay them for it, but they have a core. And what's nice about that is they have all the work coming from their different laboratories, but because of how a core works is there's always a little bit of space. And so instead of just saying, okay, I guess that space is going to go blank, they can say, hey, we can charge a little bit for it to companies like Pluton, and then we can fill that up. And the advantage to us is that we are working with the best scientists in the world for sequencing, and then we can leverage that. In terms of computation, we use what Amazon has created with AWS to leverage the computational resources of the big power of Amazon and what it's done for companies that they've shared at a cost, of course, to companies like us so we can leverage computational resources we could never possibly accomplish in that space. We're really using what has developed over the last 20 years in terms of these resources that we as a small company could never approach. But leveraging those pieces, we can now approach, you know, really massive scale in terms of the amount we can sequence and what we can learn.
1: This is, I think, a trend that we see across a lot of ag tech companies that we've invested in where the tools that have become affordable over the last five to 10 years give startups the opportunity to compete with large incumbents who previously were the only ones on the planet, frankly, with the budget to afford the kinds of hardware required to do this sort of analysis computation. When you think back to, you know, when you, in your Monsanto days, attempting to do what you are doing today, would it have been possible? Was this even conceivable back then? It'd just give us a sense for how some of these cost curves have changed over the years.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So when I was at Monsanto, to sequence one genome, to sequence one bacterial genome, cost a million dollars. So that was one bacteria. I can now sequence, you know, literally thousands for a couple hundred bucks. I mean, literally the cost curve is, I don't know, I can't, I don't know. It's asymptoting to zero. <laughs> yeah, it is crazy, the technology. And, you know, you have companies like Illumina that have really just changed how we think about that. And again, Illumina, if, for those who don't know, the reason we could track COVID so easily and knew you know, that we saw an Omicron variant or we saw an Alpha variant or whatever the variants were is because we could sequence so quickly and so massively. And Illumina, a you know, company based in you know, not far from where you guys are in Southern California or in Central California, the Bay Area has just revolutionized that piece. And then now other technologies are sort of coming in to help with you know overlap with the technologies they're doing. And that has really revolutionized what we're doing. So that was just nothing I could have even contemplated. When we started the company, that was still hard to imagine that you could get there. It was only as I was sitting there and saying, we keep looking at the same stuff. There has to be a better way. And which is really kind of the origin story is I'm running, you know, global company pipelines. And yet I'm saying, we're looking at the same stuff. Why are we looking at the same stuff? And going back to this idea of, well, we streak it out to a single colony and then we say, what does this colony look like? And so, you know, so imagine this, you know, when you think about microbiology, it's really hard. So you get a soil sample, for example, or you get a leaf sample or whatever, and then you grow it a certain way and you wait for the plates to come up, the petri plates, and that takes a certain amount of time. And then you pick them and you clean them up and then you sequence it and then you store it for a while so that the computer person can analyze it. And then they look at it and they say, okay, the hundreds you sequence, those two are kind of interesting. And then somebody goes and tests them. And then they say, okay, that wasn't interesting. And so maybe you do that to 100 organisms. And they go, yeah, maybe one's a little bit interesting. So, you know, you have companies that say, well, we've got 50,000 organisms. We've isolated 50,000 organisms, which is great. It's a huge deal. But I submit they have, then they have two products from that. And I say, you really have two organisms and you have wasted effort on 49,998 organisms. And so we don't isolate it first, we sequence it first and then say, oh, this big pile, is there something interesting in there? The other thing that that allows us to do is when we find something interesting, and so we found clue six, and it's an organism nobody had looked at. It's you know literally, there were no pesticides that had ever been seen from this organism. And we said, huh, I wonder if there are more. And so we quickly were able, because we had all the sequence, we were able to go back and isolate 50 more really fast, like within a month or so. Again, nobody had looked at them. Now we have 50 of them in our pipeline. And it turns out 75% are insecticidal. Now we're the only people in the world that know this is an interesting organism. And we've got 50 in the world that has zero because nobody had looked at this organism. And we can do that again and again and again. And that to us is is that speed and that ability to sort of hone in on something that the world really hasn't designed. I think the other piece, you know, big companies have a lot of money. You know, they have big warships. But turning an aircraft carrier is really hard. Fifteen people in a room, we can say, hey, we're going to go do this. And later that afternoon, you can be doing it. That's almost impossible in a big company. Such that a lot of the big companies saying, we're not going to try and do discovery. Now, a lot of them moving to, what, to something we call open innovation. And I was involved in some of that when I was at Monsanto, which is this idea of saying, okay, maybe big companies aren't good at discovery. Maybe big companies are good at taking something cool and turning it into a product. But all these startups are great at finding novel stuff for that very reason I described. And so maybe what we can do is we'll let innovation occur and we'll pay small amounts to get access to that innovation we find something cool we will turn that into a product and pay for that. And uh, so I think that's one of the current models for some of the larger companies. But again, it allows us to move quickly, to take this new technology, which we know that maybe other people don't, and to move that forward as quickly as we can.
1: It's definitely a model that we see the ag industry beginning to emulate a little bit of what's been going on in the farm industry for many years now, leveraging their core strength of distribution, product scaling, And then looking at startups as sort of the earlier stage R&D development engine for them. Can we circle back to the cover crop for a moment and talk a little bit more specifically about the carbon component of that? Lots of interest, obviously, from climate investors, sustainability impact investors around ags, environmental footprint, GHG emissions, those sorts of things. Lots of interest in the possibility of carbon credits within ag for practices, other land improvements. Help us put into context what the carbon component of the cover crop you're working on may bring to bear under that lens.
0: Yeah, so I'm not sure the exact question, but if what I understand you're asking, you know, we believe we can put north of a ton of CO2 equivalents per acre per year. And when you think about the amount of land that's in the U.S., since it's not necessarily, you know, just row crops, you know, the 300 million plus acres of row crops, it could be the 600 million acres of pasture. It could be pretty much anywhere you want to put it. So, all I'm talking about today, we could actually do that. Let's say imagine that we could find what we're doing a ton of CO2 per acre, and we could put it on any piece of land. Let's just say in the U.S., that's roughly a billion acres of land. Let's say we could do that. A billion acres is one north of one gigaton of carbon per year. As a human species, we're putting out about 30 gigatons per year. So we're talking about 10% of the total amount of CO2 that's going into the atmosphere from humans. And, of course, changing the amount of CO2 we have in the atmosphere. We're north of 420 parts per million today. We've never seen that as humans. You know, humanity's never seen that. We're heading quickly in the next 30 to 40 years, to 500 parts per million, which is not a good space. If we could be affecting 10% of that, and remember, we're looking at about $10 an acre. So roughly, you do that on a billion acres, you're talking about $10 billion a year, which is a lot of money, you know, as we sit around the table and talk about it. But for a government, that's a rounding error. Right? For a government, they wouldn't even know, that's like 10 billion, you know, they say what a billion here, a billion there, pretty soon we talking a lot of money, but 10 billion, it's like if you could replace 10% of what's going out into the atmosphere, pull that in and put that into soil and increase the quality of the soil at that time, my belief is you can make a huge impact on that. And that's not even talking about the rest of the world, which is in the area of five to six billion acres of soil that's addressable in that space.
1: Have you yet determined how durable that carbon is in the soil?
0: Yeah, so our current model is three to five years. But think about it like a bank. We want to give ourselves as human time to come up with all the other strategies we're going to use to solve this problem. We have to bring every bit of humanity, smarts, and innovation, and intelligence to solve this problem. And if we could give ourselves a bank of removing, you know, let's say in the U.S., let's say we could do a billion a year, over three to five years, and we can pull five billion right out of the atmosphere, right, and just bank it into the soil for a while, we could be improving yield and then giving ourselves a few more years to come up with all the solutions that we need to bring to bear. And we're not under any delusion. This is going to illusion that this is going to take a huge amount of effort from everybody to make this all work. And so, can we give ourselves more time to bring all of the, the different technologies to bear? And this is a technology we can bring about really fast. I mean, literally, this was a slide twenty-four months ago. This didn't exist. This was basically me walking around to the companies and saying, "Hey, are you willing to fund something that looks like this?" And so, you know, a huge amount of progress in two years. And we believe we can move much faster than that. We can scale this to a very, very massive degree very quickly.
1: And to be clear on the business model, though, you believe that the cover crop itself is economically justifiable to a grower because of the benefit in the soil of the carbon plus the nitrogen fixation, that you can profitably sell this. And on top of that, there may yet be additional carbon Benefits with respect to credits or other practice payments that growers may receive.
0: That's the business model. Is that we believe that on its own, this has an overall value to a grower in terms of nitrogen and carbon, exactly as you stated it. Now, I can tell you one more thing about carbon. You know, when we talk to some of the climate folks about this stuff, they're like, "Yeah, all right, three to five years, that's okay." But you know, we want hundred-year carbon. You know, and you're like, "Okay, that would be nice. I'd love to have hundred-year carbon as well." It turns out that one of the things that we were seeing from one of our, so we're growing it in the back in our labs, and there's this brown stuff collecting on the side of one of our tubs. And we're like, well, that's kind of weird. I wonder what that is. And of course, you know, I like a clean space. And I'm like, this is kind of a mess. Can we get this cleaned up? And then I started realizing from the work I've read that there is a a durable form of carbon that's found in microbes. And I didn't really think about it because it's never been seen in this organism. In these organisms. And I said, I wonder what this is. And so one of the research associates in the lab started looking at it. And it turns out it's a form of durable carbon that will last roughly 100 years. And our microbes are already making it. We're just trying to understand. I can't really talk about it too much. But we're just starting to see it. And it looks like biochar. When you isolate it, it looks just like biochar. It goes in the soil. The nice thing about it is it forms these big flakes. And so one of the things that we were kind of aware of was Boy, soil structure, that's one of the nice things about plant cover crops is, is it really does much nice job for soil structure. We know that these big flakes of stuff are actually going to form a nice are going to help with soil structure as well. So that's very nascent. I mean, literally four or five months. I mean, this is like, where did this come from? And we're just trying to discover it. But that's the beauty of having a small team that's open to saying, oh, what's happening here? And just saying, let's just ask that question of what's happening here that you can't do in a big company. That's just really hard to do in that space.
2: Barry, I've really enjoyed the time that I've spent in your lab and watching these discoveries over the last year and a half. And you're a great touchstone as a scientist for us in the microbial area. As we wrap up this discussion, I'd love to step back and just you know ask one last question. Relating to the arc of your career, you've worked in big companies, you've worked in startups, you've gained a lot of experience developing products. Now you're founded your own company. What does success mean to you at this point in your career? What is most exciting for you? What gives you the deepest pleasures at this point?
0: So one of my mentors at Monsanto was David Fischoff. And for those who know David Fischoff, David was one of the scientists that brought Cry1AC to market. And I always thought about David because when you drive through, you know, of course in Missouri next to Illinois, you drive through Illinois and Iowa, you see all these acres of corn that have Cry1AC in them. And David impacted, he impacted the planet. He impacted a grower's life. That would be my goal, right? Can I make a difference for a grower? Can I make a product that will, one day they say, you know, today, because I have that, my life is better. That's one thing that drives me. Can I make a product that makes a difference to a grower? And it's rare to do that. I understand that. That's not a trivial wish. The other piece is trying to get onto this idea of climate change. I have four children. And I want to leave the place a better place than it is today. And so I want to make a difference for their future. So those are the two things that drive me.
2: Thank you, Barry. Those are both close to our hearts and we appreciate your discussion with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for your time.
0: Yeah, well, thank you both. Thanks for all the great questions.
1: Thanks for listening to Fall Line Field Notes and our interview with Barry Goldman and Pluton Biosciences. Clay, I I enjoyed that conversation. We think a lot about biologicals as part of our overall investment thesis and where do they fit in i think we've been pretty skeptical of what we might call biologicals 1.0 a little bit more interested in the 2.0 version where you're actually seeing products that have more deterministic outcomes so getting into some depth with barry on on their take on biologicals 2.0 i I learned more about the company than i knew before
2: barry's not only a leading expert in this field but he's developing new product categories we haven't seen before And very interesting to hear how he's been able to transfer technology from human health and kind of large computational platforms to solve these problems with a small, efficient team and on the cusp of getting products into the field. Well, terrific.
1: Thank you all for listening to this episode of Fall Line Field Notes. Open your favorite podcasting app and make sure you're following the show so you never miss an episode. See us wherever you download your podcasts or on our website directly at fall-line-capital.com.